This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Scutellosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, and Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire. And Ranger Chris just joined, so thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all that you do and all of our patrons, and especially as we head deeper into the holiday season, I like to reflect back and think about all the amazing people that we've been able to connect with. So thank you so much. And if you want to join this awesome group of people, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, we have three new dinosaurs, all of which are from Asia. Whoa. Yeah. The first one was written by Andrea Cow and others and was published in Nature. And thanks to Chris for sharing it with us on Twitter. It's a new dinosaur from Mongolia called Halskaraptor Esquiei, I think. The Halskaraptor is from Halska Alsmolska, who we've talked about a couple times before, who was a paleontologist from 1930 to 2008. And they named it after her for her contributions to theropod paleontology. Cool. And then Esquiei is from Francois Esquiei or something like that. What do you think, Sabrina? Might also be something like Esquiei. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for the certainty. (laughs) So... He returned the poached holotype to Mongolia of this dinosaur, and he's French, as you can probably tell from his name. So it was smuggled originally out of Mongolia, and then to Japan, and then Britain and France, and when Francois got it, he returned it, which is how he got the dinosaur named after him. The dinosaur is essentially a full articulated skeleton with the skull, including teeth, a torso, legs, arm, most of the tail, and it almost looks too perfect. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Lots of news stories about that. Yeah, the researchers were worried that maybe it had been faked, as is often the case with some of these Asian dinosaurs where they get smuggled. And because of that, they went through some extra efforts to ensure that it was a real find. So first, they noticed that it wasn't fully prepared So they actually had to remove some more of the sediment from the fossil in order to get a really good look at it, which indicated that it was probably unlikely to be fake because typically if you're trying to get the most money for a fossil, you want to show off just how many bones you've stuck together and faked. (laughs) You wouldn't be likely to cover some of them. And after that, and I think the reason that most of the news coverage is probably about this was because the title of the paper actually talks about how they used the European synchrotron to validate that it wasn't a composite of different pieces of rock. So the researchers took it to the European synchrotron, which is a super massive, powerful x-ray that we've talked a little bit about before. It's basically a huge loop that accelerates the x-rays. And then there are all these little labs that kind of stick off from the side of it and they split off a little bit of the beam. But it's a really powerful beam, even if you split it into 100 little pieces. And you can use it to scan through rock that you wouldn't be able to with a normal CT scanner. And part of that, I think, is also because normal CT scanners are used on human bodies and on living tissue, you can't bombard it with really powerful X-ray radiation because you'll damage it. But if you're dealing with fossils, you don't have to worry about that kind of thing. And it's kind of (laughs) like the more powerful, the better, the deeper you can see. So it's a pretty ideal case for looking at something like this where you're trying to see below the surface where there might be kind of a fake layer hiding something beneath the surface. And after they spent 46 hours doing 148 scans and various CT slices, they decided that it wasn't fake and that it was really a 
a genuine specimen. And they can also tell based on the sedimentology of the specimen that it looks to be from Uka-Tolgad, which is a late Cretaceous, about 70 million years ago, formation in Mongolia that includes the flightless bird Mononychus, which is an alvarosaurid, the ones with little tiny arms. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy isn't an alvarosaurid, though. It's a very unusual dinosaur because it lived in both land and water based on some of its features. It has feet like a dromaeosaur, meaning it has those raptor claws, but it has a very swan-like neck. And the reason that they think that it lived in the water doesn't have anything to do with the neck because we see that in other dinosaurs sometimes. It's because the ratio of its finger lengths is similar to some aquatic reptiles, basically meaning that its fingers look sort of (laughs) (laughs) flipper-shaped. Which isn't immediately obvious by looking at it because it doesn't have really long fingers or anything like that. Like, it doesn't look like it has wings or big flippers. It just looks flipper-shaped. And there are a lot of birds that sort of have that kind of look to them that just spend a little bit of time underwater so they don't necessarily need really big flippers. And this is where I really got into the weeds on this one because <laughs> I had to go to multiple rabbit hole deep of their references, like references of references oh, to learn about some of these bird characteristics. So what the researchers did is they did principal component analysis, which is a statistical tool to combine features of your specimens and kind of correlate a matrix of them. So you can piece together, oh, this group looks like they all have these two components together. And in this case, the principal components that came out were size, which they ended up throwing out because it's not a very good indicator. You can find animals in different ecosystems of varying sizes Mm -hmm. and doesn't correlate that well. The second one they found was a combination of the flattening and shortening of forelimb bones. So that's what I mean by a principal component. It's like both of those factors combined Mm. in a certain ratio. And then principal component three was the sternum expansion, which is the bone in the middle of your chest. And they think that that probably expanded to increase attachment points for pectoral muscles. You could imagine how that could be useful if you had flippers. (laughs) To get to that point... What they did was they looked at 245 birds <laughs> from <laughs> six different types of locomotion. They had non-swimmers, which included things like the ostrich and the skua. And the skua is the bird we talked about with Matt Lamana. That's that crazy. It lives near the water, mm-hmm. but it doesn't actually swim at all. It's just like dive bombs thing. And he was describing it as like kind of like a hawk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something you wouldn't want to be around. Exactly, yeah. But they have no real interaction with the water other than the fact that they live near it. Then there are foot-propelled underwater swimmers, and those include things like loons and Hesperornis. And Hesperornis is that crazy prehistoric bird that looks like a penguin with huge feet. (laughs) So it's like pushing itself around with these huge feet. Then you have things that are wing-propelled underwater swimmers, like the emperor penguin. They've got big flippers instead Mm -hmm. of wings, essentially, at that point. So wing is maybe not necessarily the best case for emperor penguins, but there are some other birds that actually use wings for underwater swimming rather than flippers. Mm -hmm. There are surface swimmers, like swans and mallards. You know, you can imagine what that's like, just paddling around. Plungers, like the brown pelican, and we saw those dive bombing in the Caribbean one time. They kind of like just dive down a tiny bit yeah, and grab a fish and then pop back up. Really (laughs) close to people too. Yeah. Yeah. Pelicans don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are the foot and wing propelled underwater swimmers, which includes some ducks and some seabirds. And I couldn't find any that I had heard of before, but there was one called the golden eye duck, which I thought was kind of cool. Sounds like a James Bond kind of duck. It does, except it really just has a tiny bit of gold around its eye. It's not that exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, obviously there's a very complicated group of birds to piece through. But when they did the principal component analysis and you have that graph of flattened and shortened forelimbs versus sternum expansion, they all kind of end up in their own areas of the graphs. So over in one corner, you have the non-swimmers and a different area of the surface swimmers and et cetera. What they found with Halskaraptor is that it fits in the area with the wing-propelled birds, like the emperor penguin. 
which kind of fits too with how you know they think its fingers look a little bit flipper shaped mm-hmm. <laughs> but still has raptor feet yeah which is i guess also makes sense it probably couldn't really use its feet for locomotion underwater if it had big claws mm-hmm. on it you know i think it's pretty interesting how the how halskaraptor is portrayed too because it's basically like a swan with teeth claws a tail and shorter wings is what it pretty much looks like pretty scary looking yeah and when they recreated it with its lifelike posture they think that it was about 45 centimeters or a foot and a half tall and about 50 centimeters or one foot eight inches long which is a little bit smaller than modern swans but It's still pretty big for a bird, and modern swans are some of the biggest birds, so it's not too surprising that it's a little smaller. And this specimen, they think, was also a sub-adult, so maybe it had a little more growing to do. It's kind of hard to say. Interestingly, it's a pretty close relative to Ostroraptor, and it's now housed at the Institute of Paleontology and Geology at the Mongolian Academy of Sciences in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. Cool. Which I think is pretty much where most of their dinosaurs are. So it's a place to go if you're in Mongolia and you want to see some dinosaurs. (laughs) Or just if you're in Mongolia. That's true. (laughs) That's the place we would go. (laughs) (laughs) The next new dinosaur was published by Paul Penkalski and Tatiana Tumanova and published in Cretaceous Research. And it was actually published a little bit earlier this year, but we missed it because it's a new species, but not a new genus. So basically, first, there was a new genus named Tarkia, which means brainy one. And the species associated with that original genus was Kylanae, after Professor Sophia Kylan, and it was named in Mongolia. The new species is Tarkia teresae, and the teresae is after Teresa Marianska, who described the original genus Tarkia. With the new species, Teresa A, I think it's Teresa A with Teresa. It's always hard to figure out how these Latinized things should be pronounced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they found a skull, the brain case, some postcranial remains, which they say will be described later, which makes you wonder what lot. else they found. Yeah, it yeah. <laughs> could be anything. could be like one toe, could be like a whole rest of a skeleton. I don't know. But typically with ankylosaurs, which Tarkia is, you describe them mostly based on their skull so it kind of makes sense and then in the case of Tarkia kailane it was named partly based on its brain case too which is why it's the brainy one <laughs> so it the fact that they have both the skull and the brain case is a good way to associate the two they think that it's a new species though based on some certain bones that aren't fused which they expected to and they said it might be a subadult of the existing species, but they also noticed there are some differences in the nerve exits and proportions to the brain. So there was one case where the original species only had one, and this one had two in that spot. Hmm. So it's a little bit unlikely that your brain would form different styles of nerve connections like that right. in such a significant way as an adult. Like I said before, it was found in Mongolia, just like the original genus. And... Another interesting thing about the paper is that their analysis also showed that Minotaurosaurus was also a valid genus, which is interesting because previously it had been questioned whether Minotaurosaurus was valid. And I think that's a really great name, so it's fortunate that it's still around. It does look kind of like a Minotaur, and Minotaurosaurus, I think, means bull man reptile, I think is what it (laughs) breaks down to. Yeah, because a minotaur is like half man, half bull. Yeah. So if you put saurus on the end, it's like a third man, a third bull, a third reptile. What a mix. It's like man, bear, pig, kind (laughs) of. So that was pretty cool. those are all mammals. Yeah, so I guess it is a little bit crazier even. (laughs) And overall, it's very similar to the original Tarkia kailane, not surprisingly. And so it's probably a similar size. This is just my guessing, which would make it about eight meters or 26 feet long, which is how long the original species was. It's pretty big for an ankylosaur. Not as big as ankylosaurus, which is the king of all ankylosaurs, but (laughs) (laughs) still pretty big. 
The last new dinosaur for the week was written by Run Fu Wang and others and published in Historical Biology. It was actually published in 2015, but it wasn't published in print until this year, which is when it started showing up places where we catch sight of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a basal hadrosauroid named Zhuoyang Long Huangai, and Zhuoyang Long was discovered near Zhuoyun not too surprising, which is pretty close to Beijing. It's just a little ways to the west. And then the long part means dragon. So you can pretty easily figure out where the name came from. I like that about the Chinese dinosaur names. How they often end in dragon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is cool. And then Huang Ai is after Mr. Huang Wei Long, who excavated the first dinosaurs in Zhuoyun County. And they say even Shaanxi province in 1957, which is pretty early. So good work. <laughs> good job getting a dinosaur named after you. <laughs> they found a partial right ilium and ischium, which are both hip bones. And the ilium is about 62 centimeters or two feet long. And it's a medium-sized hadrosauroid based on those bones. And from my very rough estimates, it probably puts it at less than 30 feet or 9 meters long. Still, I mean, hadrosauroids can get pretty big, so a medium-sized one could still be pretty large. And I guess if you imagine a part of the hip bone is 2 feet long, it's going to be a pretty large animal. So... It's from the Cenomanian, which is about 95 million years ago, and it's almost exactly halfway through the Cretaceous. It's just after the halfway point, and technically that puts it in the earliest late Cretaceous. <laughs> All right. And it's now officially the earliest late Cretaceous hadrosauroid that is known from the area. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> it's related to Eolambia, which was found in Utah in the U.S. And the authors think that this means that hadrosauroids moved from Asia to North America in the middle of the Cretaceous, so right before this dinosaur was around, because it has so much in common with the North American relatives. They went to the New World. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which is actually similar to what humans did, they think. <laughs> and then some of them went back, which I'm sure some dinosaurs did too. Yeah, so it's a pretty useful, even though it's such a partial skeleton, it seems like it might be useful in helping to piece together some of the hadrosauroid history. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. In other news, dinosaur footprints found in South Korea have skin impressions, and that shows that some sauropods in the Cretaceous had polygonal skin texture that covered most of their foot pads, which is similar to modern elephants. 
and this would have helped them stay balanced when walking on like muddy and wet ground. And not many skin impressions in dinosaur footprints have been found, so that's pretty cool. The study was by Soon Paik, I think, and others, and it was published in Scientific Reports, and they examined a skin impression about 50 centimeters in diameter, as well as other partial skin impressions in other footprints. And these were found during building construction. So from the study, it says, quote, The preservation process of the distinct and large skin impression in the dinosaur footprint observed in this study can be postulated as follows. One day, a sauropod walked very slowly or stopped on a smooth and microbially active muddy surface a few millimeters thick overlying sand, forming a distinct imprint of the footpad skin texture in the footprint. The skin impression bearing surface dried out during the succeeding drought season, resulting in semi-consolidation of the skin impression. The footprint with the skin impression was flooded during the subsequent rainy season, bearing the footprint and preserving the skin impression by sediment deposition. End quote. And that, I think, sums up well how lucky you have to be <laughs> to hmm. have, well, we know any kind of fossil and footprint and just anything, really, that millions and millions of years old. Yeah, the microbially active part of that is kind of a weird thing. I wonder exactly how that works into it. Maybe it just made a certain texture that's useful or something. I don't know. Could be. It reminds me, too, of when we talk about scaled versus scaly skin. Mm -hmm. Like this would be an example of scaly skin, but not scaled skin. Because elephants look a little bit scaly. Oh, they, wrinkly. Yeah, because they kind of have that texture to them, but they don't actually have scales, obviously, because they're mammals. Mm -hmm. So I guess sauropod feet were kind of like that. Yeah, you see that depicted in some paleo art. Yeah, true. Does that make them seem wiser? Being elephant-like? And wrinkly? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Next, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science received a really large donation. Not necessarily what you would expect. It was 6,000 Edmontosaurus bones from eastern Wyoming, hmm. which is pretty cool. So the Hankla family from Danville, Kentucky, assembled the collection over a few years of excavations. And then the bones are from a one bone bed. So there's skulls and fossils from a lot of individuals. Joe Sertich, the curator of dinosaurs at the Denver Museum, said that the donation, quote, will allow us to study how dinosaurs changed as they grew and how they varied within a single population, end quote. And so from now until January 15th, some of the blocks of bones and teeth are on display at the Dinosaur Gulch play area at Cherry Creek Shopping Center in Denver, Colorado. So if you're in the area, you should check it out and tell us what you think. That's a lot of bones. 6, I know. 000. I keep thinking, like, is that enough to make any real conclusions? Because we always hear, we need more bones. <laughs> That's true. They do have some pretty good ideas about what a Montosaurus was like. And they have a pretty good growth series, too, with juveniles and adults and things. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, with 6,000, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how many individual bones there are in a Montosaurus. Yeah. Hundreds, for sure. So how many individuals do you have? Yeah. yeah. And then also, like... Is it actually 6,000 bones or is it like... Oh, pieces. Exactly. Like they, I wonder how they're counting bones and then teeth and things like that. Yeah, that's true. Um, the press releases and the, all the articles I saw about it said bones, but that's a good point. I don't know how they're breaking it down. Mm -hmm. But I think the museum issued a press release, so I would think that they would clarify. Yeah. Sometimes they just err on the high side, too, you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> but speaking of the Denver Museum, it turns out that the Triceratops bones found near Thornton, Colorado, and currently on display and being prepared at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, are actually bones of a Taurosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> or John Scanella would say, and Jack Horner, that it was always a Taurosaurus. <laughs> no, they would say an adult Triceratops. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it was always a Triceratops and will remain a Triceratops. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Sertich again said that there's only seven partial skulls of Taurosaurus that have been found. And this new specimen is the most complete and best preserved one found so far. And the reason they say it's a Taurosaurus is because its frill is thinner and more delicate than that of a Triceratops. And their Taurosaurus is nicknamed Tiny, which I think we mentioned before when we thought it was a Triceratops. They didn't change its nickname, given that it's a different genus. <laughs> Still has the nice alliteration. True. <laughs> yeah, so no need. 
Kansas University Natural History Museum now has a baby T-Rex on display. Well, almost a baby. It's actually about four years old. And the fossil is on display from now until December 31st, so you still have some time to see it. And it's alongside their adult T-Rex, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Baby T-Rexes are really hard to find because they grew so fast, so that's pretty exciting that they have one. And then this baby was found in Hell Creek and probably died fighting. Hmm. Researchers are hoping that this baby will help shed light on the whole Nanotyrannus T-Rex debate. Oh, yeah. Good point. Got both debates going on here. Yeah, we need more baby T-Rexes for sure to kind of <laughs> bring that argument to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Or it might just make things worse, like it's halfway in between the two. <laughs> <laughs> There's a third one. <laughs> That's what happened with the Taurosaurus Triceratops debate, right? Oh, yeah. With the Netoceratops. Good point. <laughs> In other display news, North Dakota Heritage Center and State Museum in Bismarck, North Dakota, has a few new things in their geologic time gallery exhibit, including two T-Rex teeth that were found in a public fossil dig near Bismarck this past August. And that's out of 10 teeth that they found. And there's going to be four more public digs next summer, which makes sense if they had such success this summer. Mm -hmm. And visitors can see prehistoric life in North Dakota from 500 million years ago to 12,000 years ago. So a nice big range at this site. And the museum's open every day except for New Year's, Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. So if you are around, you can go pretty much any day of the year. Except for two that are coming up in the next 10 days. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Details. So thanks to Luke, who shared his latest article with us via Patreon. Luke's site, you might remember, is called The Jurassic Files, and they have published another great post. This one's an interview with Dr. Denver Fowler about the Badlands Dinosaur Museum, which was formerly the Dickinson Museum Center in Dickinson, North Dakota. Dr. Denver Fowler is the curator, and he's been working on making it a world-class dinosaur museum. We'll post a link to the article so you can read the full interview, but... The gist is that it goes into Denver Fowler's background. He's from England, and he has been collecting fossils for 30 years. He likes the detective work involved in figuring out details about dinosaurs. And his museum has Allosaurus and Albertosaurus mounts, a Triceratops skull, and some cool interactive elements, to name just a few of the things that are on exhibit. Denver's also working on new exhibits, and they plan to change up the museum more often. There's also a good lab space in the museum. Nice. Yeah. Next, thanks to Damien, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So The Cut published an article about why so many kids over multiple generations love dinosaurs. And there are a lot of kids, young kids as young as three or four, who love dinosaurs and can name dozens of dinosaur names. And we, we definitely know at least a few. <laughs> yeah, we did when we were kids, too. Yeah. And they can tell you what they looked like and what the dinosaurs ate. Apparently, scientists call this obsession an intense interest. <laughs> sounds an interesting name i don't know how official it is but anyway almost a third of kids have this usually between the ages of two and six one of the most common intense interests is dinosaurs so that's pretty great and multiple generations have something dinosaur that helps spark their interest you think land of the lost for gen x jurassic park and land before time for kids growing up in the 90s Dr. Kenneth Lacavara, the paleontologist and author of Why Dinosaurs Matter, who also loved dinosaurs as a kid, and actually that's most paleontologists we talk to, probably all, hmm. <laughs> said that he thinks one of the reasons for this intense interest is it's, quote, their first taste of mastery, of being an expert in something and having command of something their parent or coach or doctor doesn't know. Makes them feel powerful. Their parent may be able to name three or four dinosaurs, and the kid can name 20, and the kid seems like a real authority, <laughs> end quote. Which, yeah, I could totally understand that. <laughs> yeah. I also think a lot of it comes from, like, the just the interesting sort of differences between all the dinosaurs mm -hmm. and the fact that they're not around anymore so it's purely in your mind yeah kind of helps and they're just so different from anything living yeah yeah it's like a good thing to imagine yeah so these intense interests give kids a confidence boost which is good for their cognitive development they become better learners and smarter and another reason kids may have these intense interests at such a young age is it quote overlaps with the peak ages of imagination-based play, end quote. So the really good news for all this is we're learning more and more about dinosaurs every month, so there's plenty of stuff to imagine. Mm -hmm. 
One example, one recent example of a young kid who's really into dinosaurs is Muhammad. He was in the news. He's a four-year-old boy. And in the Khalij Times, he said that he learns about dinosaurs from YouTube videos and books, and he can tell you 100 dinosaur names in 30 minutes. I think you should just say 100 dinosaur names. That sounds more impressive than 100 dinosaur names in 30 minutes. Because that's a really long time to list a hundred things. Well, maybe it's more than listing. Maybe he's telling you about the dinosaur, too. Oh, you think so? I don't know. Because 30 minutes, you're right, does seem like a lot. That's like, what, three a minute? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but if he's telling you, like, this is what it looked like, this is what it ate. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I would have left off the 30 minutes, though, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of what we know about dinosaurs. So Daily Dot had this fun post that's full of videos of what dinosaurs may have sounded like, sort of. So it all starts with a video someone made of a sparrow, but then they lowered it three octaves and slowed down, and they posited that that might be what dinosaurs sounded like. (laughs) And when we listen to it, I mean, it's pretty entertaining, but apparently birds make sounds with a syrinx, which didn't develop until after non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, so it probably isn't exactly like that. Are they sure about that? Um, at least from what I was reading, but I don't go into rabbit holes like you do. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to see a syrinx because I'm pretty sure it's all soft tissue. Mm. So there might be like one bone in there, but if there is, it would be pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, it'd be so tough to Maybe it did tell. sound like a lower sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest issue is actually that larger birds tend to not have a syrinx and they tend to do that booming where it's more like a frog ribbit sort of thing mm, mm-hmm. than like a chirp. Oh, so that could be, yeah. When you're, especially when you're talking about something like a T-Rex. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, that'd be great if T-Rex did chirp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so somebody posted this video on Reddit and then it got very popular. And the title of the video was Bird Calls Lowered Three Octaves Might Be What Dinosaurs Actually Sounded Like Haunting Yet Beautiful. <laughs> And then somebody made a video of a beagle lowered three octaves and slowed down and gave it the name, Dog Calls Lowered Three Octaves Might Be What Dinosaurs Actually Sound Like, Hauntingly Yet Beautiful. (laughs) And then other haunting yet beautiful videos came out, including one of babies crying and one of Yoko Ono. Oh, Yoko. (laughs) (laughs) It's haunting yet beautiful. Apparently. I didn't listen to those. (laughs) Yeah. It's always interesting to try to guess what dinosaur sounds like. You can do it so many different ways from measuring the internal cavities like they did with Parasaurolophus or making comparisons to things like alligators and emus and things that boom or growl sort of. Mm -hmm. But really all that tissue and stuff, we haven't found anything close enough to preservation quality where you could actually make a good educated guess at what it really sounded like. Even the Parasaurolophus? Yeah, because even if you have, if you think about like a human, we have these gaps in our skulls where you have sinuses, which is basically what they're recreating, Mm -hmm. but we also have soft tissue in our sinuses. Mm. So depending on how much soft tissue filled it, it would make a different sound because then you're changing the acoustical properties of the sinus. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you can always guess. It's always just like you just keep making assumptions until you end up with a final product and then you can figure out what that final product sounds like. But it's <laughs> whether you're making the right assumptions is anybody's guess. Sure. Well, speaking of assumptions on what dinosaurs sounded like. So naturalist Chris Packham and Julia Clark, who's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at the University of Texas, teamed up together to test that dinosaurs sounded more like birds and reptiles. And they used the sounds of an Eurasian bittern, which is a wading bird, and vocalizations of crocodiles to estimate how T-Rex would have sounded. And they scaled up the sound, and it sounds like a low rumble. Actually, similar to the sounds of the T-Rex thuds in Jurassic Park. Yeah, when it's walking, not really when it was making noise. Yeah. And deeper sounds usually mean they come from a large animal, so it's pretty scary to listen to. Yeah, it is kind of intense. And T-Rex may not have even had to open its mouth to make that sound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how booming goes, for sure. Yeah. The deepness of the T-Rex sounds are based on analysis of a T-Rex brain case by Dr. Larry Wittmer from Ohio University. And the low rumble could probably be heard across large areas. And you probably would have felt it, too. 
<laughs> and the sounds are part of a new BBC Two documentary, The Real T-Rex, which is coming out on January 2nd. Yeah, so there's just a little clip, and I think they only play part of the noise, mm -hmm. and they're kind of talking over it, so it's a little bit hard to hear all of it. Mm -hmm. But it is pretty intense. When we first tried to listen to it on a laptop, we couldn't hear it at all. And I realized it was because the speakers on laptops don't go low enough. <laughs> yeah. So we had to switch to our TV so that we could actually hear the notes. Yeah. And then it was really deep. It did sound a lot like the T-Rex footsteps. Not at all like the roar, though, which is that crazy like whale, lion, you know, Whatever turtle mix, mix yeah. that somebody came up with, which is a pretty crazy roar that they made. Mm -hmm. But it's there's really no reason to think T-Rex sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this one was a better guess than the lowered bird because mm -hmm. you're you're talking about the wrong kind of biology. Well, at that point. they did more research. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of BBC documentaries, the day the dinosaurs died is finally coming to the U.S. The documentary is about the Chicxulub crater, and it airs on December 27th on PBS. And we talked about this documentary in other episodes, but we haven't been able to watch it yet. And Garrett did an interview with one of the scientists. I think we might have seen it on BBC somehow, like maybe when we were in Canada or something. Oh, okay. But we'll have to watch it again just to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got lots of dinosaur media news this week, too. So there's dinosaurs on the show Doctor Who, or at least in one episode, there's a story in season six. It sounded like it might have been the first episode of season six, but I don't actually watch Doctor Who. So it was called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. <laughs> and according to BBC America, apparently the title is a riff on the movie Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know much else, but if you're a Doctor Who fan, you got some dinosaurs you can watch. That's funny. <laughs> You know, if there were dinosaurs, the right dinosaurs on the plane with the snakes on the plane, mm -hmm. they would have just eaten the snakes because there are several types of birds that eat snakes. Oh, true. What would you rather have on a plane? Definitely birds, mm. for sure, because birds aren't poisonous or sorry, venomous oh, to be correct. Right. <laughs> what if they were non-venomous snakes? Uh, I think I'd still rather have birds. Mm. Birds tend not to really mess with people much. <laughs> Tell it to the seagulls. <laughs> and swans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's a new dinosaur park management sim game called Parkosaurus that's coming to Steam Early Access next spring. And in this game, you build pens for dinosaurs and travel back in time and you steal dinosaur eggs to fill those pens. So your, your typical park management sim game, I guess. And then you have to make sure that you keep your dinosaurs healthy based on the shape of your exhibits and materials used, and that you hire the right people for your park. So it sounds like a pretty fun game, and it's coming out just in time for Jurassic World. I'm sure that's on purpose. Yeah, that is true. There's several uh, new dinosaur and sort of Jurassic Park-ish games coming out in the next year. Mm -hmm. And we even talked about at least two other sim park builders <laughs> yeah i feel like i've been hearing a lot more about those kinds of games lately yeah makes sense since that's what jurassic park is in dinosaur book news i just heard about a new dinosaur book called bolivar i think that's how you pronounce it it's a chapter book about a girl named sybil who lives in new york city and her next door neighbor is a dinosaur <laughs> but the twist <laughs> Garrett, I think you'll appreciate this. Everybody in New York City is so busy, they don't notice that he's a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is meant for kids, but it sounds pretty cute, so I might have to get a copy. That reminds me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And we were talking about them the other day and how like they would just get up and go out in the city and no one seemed to care that they were turtles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was in New York, but it seems New York-ish. I New, York they were in New York, yeah. They got the rat dad. <laughs> and all the sewers everywhere. It's kind of New York-y. But yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it does. I wonder if it has any drawings being a chapter book. Because probably on the cover I at least. I think there are drawings. Yeah. Cool. I'll have to get a copy and I'll let you know. So next, thanks to Chris who shared this one with us via Facebook. Dino for Hire, which is Chris's company. It's a dinosaur entertainment company in the UK. Not to be confused with... We have another listener, Chris... We also interact with a lot on Facebook and also has a dinosaur entertainment company in the UK, but it's called Rent-A-Dinosaur. 
But Dino for Hire is now booking their 2018 school educational dinosaur workshops, and they bring dinosaurs, fossils, keynote presentations, replicas, and rangers to schools. Nice. A lot of good options if you're in the UK and you want a dinosaur to come to you. I know. Think of the parties you could throw. (laughs) (laughs) So we're a little late with this one for the holidays, at least for Hanukkah. But maybe this is good news for you for next year. Uh, Lisa Pierce, who has the Etsy shop, The Vanilla Studio, sells creative menorahs, including one called the Menorasaurus Rex. That one, it's a T-Rex. And in the picture, one's painted silver, the other's gold. And she also does triceratops and raptor menorahs, as well as T-Rex candlesticks. Hmm. Actually, I don't know what their typical price range is for candlesticks or menorahs, but hers are $85 for menorahs and 65 for candlesticks. Yeah, that's really cool. And we did post about this on Facebook and other social medias <laughs> pre-Hanukkah, which, but sometimes it's just hard to get these things out in time for the show with all the editing and everything. Mm-hmm. So if you're following us there, you might have already seen it. So we have some dinosaur vandal news this week. In Centennial, Colorado, there were some people who tore down lights and stole a three-foot dinosaur wearing a Santa hat from a family's home. The family's name is the Strickers. And this family has been doing this display for eight years, and it's known as Strickers Winter Wonderland. I know. Why would you do that? But the display helps them raise money for their kids' elementary school, which is nearby. The vandals, though, they were caught on camera, and one guy's dad, he's the dad of one of the vandals, flew to Colorado to make his kid apologize. I don't know where Mm. he was coming from, but... (laughs) That's funny. Something that's also kind of funny is there's this story of a shopper. (laughs) The way I see it, they got something that was exactly as advertised. So a mom bought a dinosaur-themed pillowcase online for her son after seeing a photo of it, and the photo shows a boy lying down on what looks like a dinosaur pillow. And she ended up getting a pillow with that exact image of the boy sleeping on (laughs) the dinosaur. (laughs) The listing has since been taken down, but I think she's pretty annoyed. (laughs) Yeah, that's ridiculous. We actually bought a pillowcase online and it was also like similarly crappy it looked like there was a texture like the pillow had like a certain texture to it but that's actually printed onto the pillow Mm -hmm. so it just looks really unclear the image because it looks looks like it's a picture yeah it looks like a picture of a fuzzy pillow but it's a picture of the fuzz too (laughs) so (laughs) it seems like there's a lot of these companies that just make tons and tons of pillowcases and maybe that's just automated by bots or something yeah because it's like who would ever want a picture that has a picture of fake fuzz or a picture (laughs) of somebody holding a pillow (laughs) somebody you don't know it's just nonsense yeah It has to be some sort of weird bot mistake. It's the only (laughs) thing that makes sense. In some other news, Chicago Mag published this really great interview with Sue the T-Rex. Or, you know, somebody speaking like they are Sue the Mm. (laughs) T-Rex. So Sue has her own Twitter handle, which has over 31,600 followers and has gotten into some interesting Twitter fights, like there was one with Miriam Webster earlier this year. So in the interview, Sue talks about her fixation with Jeff Goldblum, as well as what she'll do when she's off display, getting ready to be remounted in the Chicago Field Museum, and favorite moments from her 2017 feed. So some gems from the interview. Uh, when asked who is behind Sue the T-Rex, and if there are multiple people involved, she said, quote, I am Sue, or Sue the Tyrannosaurus Rex, if you're not into that whole brevity thing. Hmm. I have several casts that tour to other museums, if that's what you're asking, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> and her response to how did you get to be such a natural on Twitter was, quote, as a large territorial apex predator, I was actually pretty accomplished at dominance displays and preying on the weakest of the herd. So you could say I was basically born to thrive in today's modern social media landscape, hmm. end quote. <laughs> that's silly. Yeah, pretty entertaining interview. And it's short. We've got a little bit of news about the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom trailer, sort of. It's more, actually, Forbes published a geological review of the trailer. (laughs) So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the trailer yet, we're going to talk about it. Also, Garrett mentioned some of these things last time. (laughs) 
but it talks about how it would be impossible for Owen Grady to escape the volcanic eruption, which is what Garrett said. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It said, quote, Pyroclastic flows, also pyroclastic density currents, or PCDs, are avalanches of hot gases, volcanic ash, and boulders traveling at a speed exceeding, in most cases, 50 miles per hour. The fastest professional sprinter can reach 30 miles per hour, but only over a short distance, end quote. And also, according to the article, quote, a series of pyroclastic flows during the eruption of Mount Pele in 1902 killed an estimated 20 to 40,000 people. Only three survivors were reported, end quote. So PCDs, basically, they're also lethal up to six miles from the volcano. And because the heat will burn your skin and cause bodies to shrink from a loss of water, Mm -hmm. vaporization. And also inhaling the hot gases would burn your lungs. So technically nobody would be surviving what they are in the trailer. Pyroclastic flows are super gnarly. They basically make full trees burst into flames and disappear in just like the span of the gas moving through it because it's so hot and so gnarly. So yeah, I didn't know they were called PCDs. That's a good way to like show that you're a professional to start mm-hmm. dropping abbreviations for things <laughs> <laughs> or pyroclastic density currents pcds <laughs> like, i'm not at that level of geology yeah unfortunately. <laughs> yeah but in the trailer it's interesting they're talking about if he could outrun it because they actually showed him getting overtaken by it at mm-hmm. the very end of him running so then it's like, well, he's just dead at that point. Yeah. There's, there's no coming back from that. It's not like he's going to reemerge from it alive. True. Because he's, he's cooked. That would be such a painful death. <laughs> uh, it'd probably be quick. Mm. Yeah, I think he'd suffocate pretty mm. much immediately. Okay. Just pass out. <laughs> anyway, we have some a little bit of happier news. <laughs> this will actually last on the news. David Orr from Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs published the results of the great 2017 Paleo Art Survey. And this they surveyed 350 people, and the results from that small sample, which they admit is a small sample, show that most paleo artists are young male and not really making money from their work. Actually, only 144 of them identified themselves as professionals who were paid for their work, and most have been producing work for less than 10 years. Also, most people in that sample live in North America. So it gives you a little bit of an idea, but I don't think comprehensive, and I think they mentioned that too. 350 people is a pretty good sample size, though. That's not really too bad. But the big question is, like, how many full-time paleo artists did he get in on it? It might just be kind of a group that follows something online that Mm -hmm. are a little more casual, which could be a problem. Yeah. And two of the most successful paleo artists we know are women. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I don't know if they took the survey. True. On the bright side, though, there's greater demand for this kind of work, which makes sense. More people are getting into dinosaurs. And some of the fun stats that they included, most do 2D traditional art, create prehistoric life in general, use scientific literature for research, and they love what they do. Loving what you do is nice. Mm Mm-hmm. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Skewtelosaurus, which was a request from Miss Waffles the Kitten via YouTube. So thanks. It was a Thyreophoran that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Arizona in the U.S. And Thyreophorans are the group that eventually turned into ankylosaurs and ankylosauroids and also stegosaurs. So kind of gives you an idea of what sort of dinosaur it might be like. But this one doesn't really fit neatly into either of those categories. Yes, but it it was an armored dinosaur. Yes. And its closest relatives were probably a Mausaurus and Scalidosaurus. Its name means little shielded lizard. And there's only one species, Scutellosaurus lawleri. The species name is in honor of David Lawler, who found the fossil. And Lawler was a grad student at the University of California, Berkeley at the time, and found the holotype at the West... Moenkopi Plateau locality at the silty fossils member of the Cayenta Formation in Coconino County, Arizona, which is part of the Navajo Nation, and he found this in 1971. 
It was described by Edwin Colbert in 1981 based on the fossils law were found as well as a second specimen. James Clark found six more specimens in 1983. Colbert originally thought it was related to Lesuthosaurus, a basal ornithischian, and placed Scutellosaurus in the family Fabrosauridae, but the scutes and other features eventually put it into Thyreophora. It's one of the earliest armored dinosaurs and the most basal one found so far. But it's too basal to be considered an ankylosaur or stegosaur, as Garrett mentioned. Scutellosaurus had over 300 osteoderms on its neck, back, and tail, and those formed parallel rows, up to five rows on each side. The scutes were too small for species recognition. They were embedded like in crocodiles and not really visible. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that there are modern animals that have scutes, but crocodiles are a really good example. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't even realize. The armored back. That's why they're all bumpy. Uh, it's actually armor. So the scutes could have been used for defense. Potential predators at the time included Megapnosaurus and Dilophosaurus. But Scutellosaurus was an herbivore. It had leaf-shaped cheek teeth. And it was small and lightly built. It could grow up to 3.9 feet or 1.2 meters long. And it weighed 22 pounds or 10 kilograms. It was just a little guy. Yeah. It's like a little puppy. A little armored guy. <laughs> it was probably bipedal, though it may have walked on all fours when eating. And it had a long tail, probably to help it balance. That's cool. I like that guy. <laughs> a little scuty. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day comes courtesy of some Mongolian paleontologists. So we talked a little bit about Teresa Marianska earlier in the episode. And she was a Polish paleontologist who named two ankylosaurs in 1977. The first is Tarkia also known as the brainy one. And the second is Cycania, which is the beautiful one. <laughs> so the Cycania... Rivalry. Yeah. Cycania was found with belly armor, they call it, and had a lot of other bones that were in really great shape. It kind of reminds me of the description of Zool or Borealopelta, where you look at it and you're like, wow, that's a really beautiful preserved dinosaur. Whereas Tarkia was described with a larger brain case than <laughs> Cycania. So they kind of made up almost a little rivalry, like you said, between the two dinosaurs, <laughs> which I just love that there's the brainy one and the beautiful one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as an aside, it's really cool that during even the 70s and 60s in Mongolia, there were multiple Polish women doing really great paleontology in the area, which is something we didn't really see anywhere else in the world as far as I know. It was really cool. Yeah. Ahead of the times, that Mongolia and Poland. Yeah, it is cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. This is our last episode before Christmas. So Garrett and I wish you all a Merry Christmas if you celebrate. And happy belated Hanukkah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and hope you all have safe travels if you're traveling. And we will post our next episode before New Year's. Because we're sticking to our schedule. <laughs> if you want to join our growing community on Patreon, then check out our page at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.